Welcome to the Harrington Star FinTech Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Discussions. I want to showcase people across our industry who are advocates for change. I love to celebrate the wins, but we know there is so much more to be done to ensure that change actually happens to build a truly inclusive industry. In these diversity, equity and inclusion discussions, I have a number of series. The Humans of FinTech, The Talent Surgery, The Maternity and Paternity Stories, and the longest running of all, the Women of FinTech podcast series. I do lots of work to drive change campaigns across our industry to increase inclusion within the workplace. So please contact me to see how we can partner together. You can contact me through LinkedIn or on my email, nadia.edwards-dashti at harringtonstar.com. In the meantime, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Women of Fintech podcast series. We are here today to celebrate the wins, raise awareness of the challenges, and walk the talk for change across the entire industry. Today, we are joined by Lindsay Jane, the VP of Product for Yoko. Yoko is an African technology company that builds tools and services to help small businesses get paid, run their business better, and grow. Lindsay has a diverse background, having worked for the government and the likes of Monzo. She's a University of London International Relations graduate and a London Business School MBA graduate. She is here today to share her story and her learned along the way. So welcome, Lindsay. It is great to have you here. Thanks very much, Nadia. It's good to be here. So could you tell us a bit more about your role at Yoko and what that actually entails? Of course, sure. So I lead product at Yoko, I'm the VP of product. And what that really means is the things that we release to merchant small businesses, our customers, for them to use every day. It's the the services, the hardware, the software that they buy. And leading product is really about figuring out what it is that merchants need and then building things that meet those needs. And I do that by leading teams of product managers, of product designers, industrial designers, of teams who have partnerships with other interesting businesses, and by working really, really closely with our technology uh, and data teams as well. And we create cross-functional teams from all of those disciplines because we think that when you get the diversity of thought that comes from different professional backgrounds, that we can make really, really interesting solutions for our customers. That sounds fantastic. And I think the great thing about that is I know that as a business, you're, you know, you're on a mission and you're on a mission to change the way that people have run their businesses. So I'd love to hear more about exactly how that's working and what you do to disrupt the industry, what in turn drew you to Yoko. It'd be great to hear that part of the story. Yeah, of course. So I mostly worked in the UK since I studied and, and way before that as well. I came to studying later in life. But I grew up in South Africa, so uh, it's always been a place that's, that's very, very dear to my heart. And I used to lead product at Monzo and really got addicted to this fabulous mission of making money less stressful. Money is hard. It has a really difficult impact on people's lives if you're in a difficult position. And I find very much that if you can take that stress away, then you really are changing the world. And what's interesting about Yoko and what Yoko does is it wants to offer 
progressive, empowering tools to people that the banks are ignoring, to people who've been excluded from the market. It's like, no, you can't have this. You aren't legitimate enough. Your business isn't formal enough. The signals from the market are you don't deserve it. And this time during COVID has been particularly interesting as we've watched businesses struggle with cash flows and finding ways to pivot to keep themselves going. And what draws me to Yoko is it's deeply customer-centered mission and its belief that we can open access to people to give them tools to find better ways to take payments, to manage their money and to get paid. And just this incredible company that wants to do that for many countries around the world, but definitely starting here in South Africa and also just has a really beautiful culture. I believe that the word integrity is about your values integrating with your actions. And I've really seen that with Yoko. It connects daily, weekly to its communities of small merchants. It is really, really very opinioned in, about, in its way of working and looks after its team really well. And, and that's what drew me in. It's a powerful mission and a group of people that growing a business is a fiery and interesting thing. And it's a group of people I want to go through the fire with. Wow, that's a lovely way of putting it. It's a group of people I'd like to go to fire with. I, I really like that. Because I think you're so right to, to highlight that. Like it's one thing saying you're on a mission or saying we've got these wonderful values, but sometimes you do see a disconnect between those values and, and what people are actually doing, what their actions are. So I really like the way that you've, you've connected the two and that you're really proud of that. It's brilliant to hear. So you've touched a bit upon your background there, and I'd love to delve into that in a bit more detail because our audience love to hear lessons along the way. Yeah, sure. Uh, everybody I ever meet says, gosh, you have an unusual background. And I remember sitting at an interview for a, a, like a, an additional program during my MBA and the executive who was interviewing me said, wow, there's a really interesting thread running through everything you did. And I sort of perched on the edge of my chair going, there is, because somebody yeah. had seen a thread, <laughs> someone had seen this thread and, and I hadn't seen it before. And what he said the thread was, was about, it was powerful brands um, or well-known brands. And that made sense for that reference. But for me, it's actually something quite different. For me, it's always been industries that have been slow to technology, slow to sort of modernize and digitize. And that's always been really fun because it's been breaking down old fashioned ways of thinking that make life difficult for a customer and easy for an institution, whether that's been luxury fashion, whether it's been gov.uk, the government's website that I helped to run in the early days, or, or whether that's been banking with Monzo. And I've had lots and lots of different roles. I didn't go to university straight out of school. I spent seven years traveling the world, working as cabin crew. And in that time, I learned Japanese. I did wine tasting courses. I learned a bit of sign language. I did a couple of degrees. You, you mentioned one of them. And had this amazing exposure to service design and to a brand that wanted to do things differently. And Virgin at the time was doing some early experimentation with the Royal College of Art on how do you design a whole journey? And, you know, airplane travel can be fraught and emotional and stressful and you get handed off from pillar to post along the way. How would you think about a journey end to end? And that's kind of, yeah, was a really, really useful grounding for me because every time I went to work, I had to work with a new team. So I got really good at, at managing people and you had to do it in, in very high pressure situations and you were on the front line a lot. And as I've become 
more senior and, and sort of fallen into the world of technology, that has been a really, really powerful background that sort of allowed me to jump through things. It's so interesting to hear just like your personal passion, but also your mindset of really enjoying breaking down the old ways of thinking. It really just shows why this is just a perfect, perfect role and, and industry for you because you kind of relish in that challenge. And that's one thing I love about fintech, that it's about looking at the status quo and saying we could do this better in lots of different ways. And you're really walking that talk. I wanted to ask your opinion around pipeline, because mm. I know you believe that there's a myth surrounding the pipeline discussion. So can you share some of that with us? Yeah, a reflection, I'm not sure I'd necessarily describe it as a, as a myth. I think it's more of a crutch, maybe, because I'm sure if you looked at the data, you would see that potentially there are fewer people who, they're underrepresented groups, they are going to be underrepresented, but fewer women, fewer people of colour, fewer neurodiverse people available to you with the experience that you might be looking for on that particular day. But the reason that it frustrates me when people say, oh, we haven't been able to create a, a diverse or an inclusive organisation because the people just aren't out there, is it sort of them saying, well, we did what we always did, did when we went to hire and, and we didn't find these people, they just weren't there. Or we changed what we did a little bit and the people didn't come. And so they aren't there, we can't hire them. This is not on us. And I think that that's kind of lazy because if you thought about those people as uh, you were a, a startup looking for venture capital funding and you needed to go out and find it, you'd do everything it took to find it, to create it. You'd think long-term, you'd think short-term. So for me, the pipeline problem often just comes up, I think, as, as a little bit of an excuse. And it's an excuse because being able to radically shift to have, say, gender parity in your teams would be a really big effort. You might have to think very long-term and start career switching or apprenticeship programs. You might have to make a hire that was somebody with the experience you were looking for, but also bring in somebody who had the potential and develop them both at the same time. You might have to change your policies to make your workplace attractive to some of the amazing high-flying people out there who you know, have their pick of jobs because they're, you know, <laughs> everybody's knocking on their doors saying, won't you come work for us? So I think overall, when people say, oh, it's very hard, we're like, yes, but it's very important. And you've overcome bigger obstacles than this in your business to get here. So if you mean it, back it up with action. Mm, yeah, really, really well said. And look, from my point of view, uh, these are the conversations I'm having all the time. And it is, you've brought up such an important topic because so many people do shy away from the action involved in this conversation because they think mm -hmm. or they've convinced themselves that they've done enough. And I know I've told you about my 17% list and the audience know about it because I've spoken about it so much, but I implemented last September something called the 17% list where I am showing companies across the fintech space, women within technology, to try and dispel this myth that women don't exist in technology. Because in the UK yeah. today, of all technology roles, 17% of them are filled by women, which is why I call it the 17% list. And what I'm trying to do, it's completely different. It's everything that you've just said here. Do something different to get a different result. You know, let's, let's not do the yeah. de definition of madness, as Einstein would say, you know, and expect a different result. And with this, yes. it's shocking because 
I receive a lot of objections actually, even though I've found and created roles for women in technology outside the industry, in the industry, and there's loads of success stories that I put out on LinkedIn all the time. I hit so many objections from companies who say publicly they want to drive gender equality or minority equality uh, within their businesses and they want to attract those types of people. But when I come to them with a solution of how they can do it, because it's changing their recruitment process, it's too much change and they're not as agile as they portray themselves to be. It really is what you've described there. It's, it's quite interesting. I think there are a lot of parallels with product development, with software, with digitization, and with this, which is companies say, oh, we want to be digital. And then you show up, and we definitely experience this in government, and you show up and you're like, great, this is not the shiny website you throw on the side. This is changing your whole way of thinking. We're now going to design all of your services around your customers. We're going to release things much, much more quickly so they can't go through slow stage gates. And there's sort of a, a bit of a tissue rejection. There's, we want this great thing everybody else has, but we also want to stay the same. And I think the narrative and the discourse has fortunately moved on enough that you, know, you definitely couldn't stand up in business today and say, actually, I don't care that much about whether my team's you know, diverse or, or has, represents the, the population that we serve. So kind of everybody has to say they want it, but, but you're also saying, do you want to change fundamentally? And, and fundamental change can be quite difficult because we're not just talking about diversity, we're talking about inclusion. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's when you arrive, I'm expected here. This is an environment in which I can thrive. This isn't an environment in which I might be excluded or might find it more difficult, in which you know, the fact that I need to take time out for prayers in the middle of the day is you know, mean that I'll be excluded from meetings. You've got to create something that draws people in that they want to be part of. And I, and I think that sometimes involves some, some fairly uncomfortable change. Really interesting you say that because it is uncomfortable, isn't it? Because you can produce a solution for somebody and human beings, we like to do what we've always done, right? But expect yes. different results. And I think that's a thread throughout all, all of our conversations so far, that you are very much uh, the driving force to change that. And that leads me quite nicely to the next conversation about people and your people strategy. This is something that you've mm. spoken to me a lot about in the past. So I think it'd be really relevant for you to tell the audience your thoughts around that. Yeah, I think... When you start out at work, you know, it's, it's what you do every day that makes the difference. And your company strategy, what you be, how you believe you're going to win and where is, is really important. But the more senior I've become, the more I've realized the only way my strategy comes to life, the only way we actually do what we set out to do and, and you know, adjust and, and become successful is through people, is through teams. So one of the primary or if not the primary way for me to succeed is by having a great team. So I tend to develop kind of three things when I go to work. One might be the product strategy. What should we build? What's our point of view? What are we going to do there? The other will be around ways of working. How are we working better together? How are we always mastering our craft and and getting better at it? But the third will be, and this will take up as much, if not more of my time, is who are the people doing that for me? What are their skills? How much are they thriving? How successful are they? And absolutely, I'll sit down and write a strategy that's like, how are we going to handle this? So for instance, in South Africa, 
product management is a sort of a newer discipline. There's a fair amount of product ownership role, which I distinguish as somebody who takes requirements from a business owner and goes off and gets them built. Whereas a product manager is somebody who figures out what's an important problem to solve and then brings technology, regulation, design, data together to do it. It's a new skill set. So if I really want the team to succeed, then I need to be making investments in capability for the entire market as well as for my own people. And that's where we start looking at external mentorship programs, at creating communities of practice, at creating a bit of a product school so people could come into the organization from a different career, maybe later in their career, maybe fresh out of school, whatever it is, and we can look at, at upskilling them. So I always have kind of a, a very long-term play going on the strategy as well as the very immediate, oh, goodness gracious me, we're a fast growing company. We've got to get some bums on seats like yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, my year, my year started not by going, what are our deliverables? But by, by sitting on LinkedIn and getting on the phone and reaching out to people and, and chatting to them because I had a really important hire to land and that person was going to unlock lots for me. So the most high leverage thing I could do was make sure that we found them. Mm. Absolutely. Like couldn't agree more with all of this. And I love your hands-on approach to it and just, you know, the creativeness to, to be thinking differently. But I think what's just so relevant at the moment is we are seeing, like from my, my recruitment point of view, we're seeing so many fintechs pass their series A, series B, get new funding in, they've got huge growth plans. And this term of war on talent is back. And my most hated <laughs> term is the shallow talent pool. Like, I hate when people say it's shallow. It's only shallow because you just want people to be an end product when they join you. Like, yeah. How about investing in someone? And then we grow that talent yeah. pool. The pool is There's a very shallow, yeah. very shallow talent pool of qualified marine, like Navy SEALs. Exactly. That's why they train them. Exactly. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, there are, it is definitely a buyer's market. I'm, I convene a group of, of product leaders and we sort of get together and chat about opportunities and problems we're all facing. And the last time we met, we're like, hands up if you're hiring and every hand in the room went up and, you know, that's what we talked about. So, you know, there, there are a lot of high growth companies in this space, but, you know, you're competing for customers as much as you're competing for the brilliant people who help you make those customers happy. But I mean, I think there's a lot of really obvious stuff, right? I, I did an experiment when we were at Monzo, actually inspired by our design team. I put out two job descriptions. One was for a group product manager and the other was for a director of product. And I put exactly the same words. Nothing about these job descriptions was different. And it's the usual thing. The number of applicants I got to the director role who were female or who identified as female was way, way lower than the number who applied to the group product manager. And for the design role, somebody I know who's really smart actually messaged me and said, look, I don't think I'm experienced enough for the other role. Having read the, the spec, do you think I can make a, an application for the more junior one? And it absolutely blew my mind. Wow. That, you know, if it is, and I don't like the, the war or the competitive kind of like, you know, mm. scarcity mentality. I believe that there's plenty of abundance if you know how to create it. Is you do have to get a little bit smart and, and bring that kind of test and learn mentality that we have in tech into, into how you find the right people. 
Yeah, I completely, completely agree. And again, we're back to mindset, aren't we? Because that's just how someone mm. perceives the world. Yeah, there's no talent. There's no talent anywhere. Or there's no women in technology. And, and you know, talking to a woman, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's very, very interesting. There was something else that I wanted to ask, and it was around the, the topic of inclusion and how we must not put the burden on marginalised groups. You've witnessed a lot of this in the past, as have I. And I think it's such a key point to be sharing. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's very true. So, I mean, I guess the famous example is Sheryl Sandberg getting pregnant, then realizing it's a long walk from the car park. Yeah. And when you've experienced something, you have a unique perspective about how it's difficult, but you also almost need to start from the privileged perspective of having been able to skip up and jump from the car park to start. Mm-hmm. So I'll remember a conversation with my CEO at one company where he said, I'll do whatever it is you need just tell me what it is that you need to thrive here, to do well here. And I found it really difficult to articulate that. And I had to go away and think about why it was I felt comfortable in in environments that weren't quite so male dominated before and why I was feeling uncomfortable here. It just felt like, why is it that somebody has to be praying in the stairs or breastfeeding in the toilets before we notice that we haven't created that space? Why, when I arrive at reception and I'm so short that the camera is over the top of my head and I go, hey, if I was in a wheelchair, you wouldn't be able to take my photo at security. Do I always then have to be the one speaking up and going, you know, hey, we haven't thought about this. I have privilege in my life in so many ways. But being the person who always has to go, what about this? What about this? What about this? Sort of positions you as as a bit the stereotype around women and of nagging. It's not okay to ask the people who've, haven't been thought of to demand that they're thought of. You should be thoughtful about this. You can find design agencies who can help you create a, a physical or a virtual working environment that, that supports people. You know, the, there are ways to do this without you saying, oh, well, and also there's the fatigue. You know, you're the senior woman of color in our company and it's always you who's trotted out for International Women's Day to, to tell yeah. the story. So I think that, as long as you're asking the people who have sometimes been excluded or have, or have not necessarily found their places easily to, to create their space, you're missing the point. I think it's, it's up to the people who are there and the people who are responsible. And as an executive, I include myself in that, but, but it's up to the people who are there to, to make the space, not to get people to ask for it. Mm. Really interesting thoughts. And it, again, it's, it's making sure that we're being more aware of the people that are around us and the future potential people that could be around us and not just thinking so insular about our experience. And, and I think that's, that's so, so important the way that you've explained that because it isn't okay mm. and it is exhausting. I use the word exhausting quite, quite a lot in these types of conversations because you can't always be the one that's saying it. You need other people to not just hear and listen, but you need other people to, to try and walk in your shoes as well. And I think it's really powerful the way that you've explained that. I actually wrote down, why do we need someone praying in the stairwell or breast pumping in the toilet? I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Should never ever get to that before we realise we haven't been truly inclusive or created a safe space. So that's really yeah. powerful to hear. Thank you. Sure. My last question then is on this thread in terms of calls to action and what you think that the fintech community in particular should be doing more of for genuine, authentic workplace inclusion. Yeah, I think for me, the most powerful thing is allyship. 
is as somebody who is working off whatever privilege you happen to be working off, doing what it takes to educate yourself and to be able to speak up for others. And, you know, it can be really uncomfortable. The first time you have to answer that question, you know, if somebody's transgender or non-binary, what is the right way to address them? That there are people who need to, to understand and be educated in these things before they feel comfortable doing it. But I think the most important thing you can do really is learn and, and be a really strong ally and a really strong advocate. We used to say back in my GDS days, if you got an invite to speak, turn it over to somebody who thought they had nothing to say. So my first sort of experience on a panel on a stage was because a senior woman said to me, I think you should take this. And I said, nobody's interested in anything I have to say. And she's like, you're completely wrong. Let's work on, on what that might be. So I think it's always the, the usual stuff. I think you'll find Nadia was speaking. Let's let her finish that point. Or it's educating yourself enough to be an ally. And I think I would also lean once more into that point about inclusion. I'm sure we've all heard that saying before that diversity is being invited to the dance and inclusion mm. is being asked to dance. Yes. Yeah. And I think particularly in a world where so many of us are sitting behind our computers and feeling more disconnected and more isolated, we have to be really, really mindful that the environment that we create means that there's space for people and that when they do arrive they are expected they are welcomed and their contribution is valued particularly if they're the first it's always quite tiring to be the first as you were saying exhausting quite tiring to lead the charge so those people need extra support and, and a little bit of of allyship and sponsorship from people who have status from people who have credibility goes a, a really long way until they can create that space for themselves. And again, a really, a really, really important point about people who've got credibility, people, and I, I think people with experience that others look up to, because I think everyone uses this term, you know, let, let's have sponsorship from the top. And I speak to so many businesses who say, oh, we do, we do. And actually you want to know, well, what does that, what does that mean? Is the CEO mm. stand by somebody that's saying this isn't right and actually stand up for somebody before they need to even say this isn't right? Think about them. And I think what you've said today has been brilliant to hear because there's loads of calls to action, which, which I love. Um, I love it for people to be able to finish listening to a podcast and think, great, I want to contact that person. I want to get in touch with that company. And <laughs> I'm going to do something about this today myself. And, you know, I, I love the hashtag this year of the International Women's Day of Choose to Challenge. And for me, that was always about let's all choose to challenge ourselves to be better mm -hmm. and to become allies. And I love the fact that your point today throughout all of it has been about this mindset and um, really taking the charge yourself and supporting those around you. So I feel like I've learned so much. And, and I think the way that you've explained it all has been absolutely brilliant and so unique. So thank you for bringing you to the Women of Fintech podcast series. That's my absolute pleasure, Nadia. Thank you for having me. Yeah.